Welcome to Holistic Wellness, a podcast exploring the science and metaphysics of health and wellness. I'm your host, Brandi Searcy, founder and formulator at Rain Organica, where you'll find holistic skincare in one simple routine. Today, we're talking about wheat's connection with autoimmunity. Now, wheat dates back as old as civilization. So why does it seem like people are like suddenly in the past, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 years getting so sick from a food that's been a staple since time immemorial? The short answer is today's wheat is not the wheat of our ancestors. Going back about 10,000 years, the original wheat, einkorn wheat, wheat is genetically different from modern day wheat. Einkorn is a diploid wheat species, meaning that it has just 14 chromosomes. Emer, which is a natural offspring of einkorn, naturally hybridized with a type of goat grass. And emer, the, so the way that um, chromosomes work in the plant world is rather than combining the two chromosomes from each parent and winding up with 14 chromosomes in the child, the way that happens in humans, uh, you, it, there's an additive effect. So Emer provided its complete DNA sequence and this goat grass that it mated with provided its complete DNA sequence. And what happened was immersion of a tetraploid wheat that has 28 chromosomes. So twice as many as the original einkorn wheat. Einkorn and Emer remained the mainstay wheat varieties for thousands of years. And eventually Emer wheat, so this is Triticum turgidum, naturally mated with another grass, Triticum tauchi, and this resulted in a 42 chromosome ancestor to modern day wheat, Triticum astevium. So Triticum astevium was higher yielding and more amenable to baking than either einkorn or emer wheat. And for centuries, triticum estevium remained unchanged. In 1943, the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center was set up as a collaboration between the Rockefeller Foundation and the Mexican government to help Mexico achieve agricultural self-sufficiency. And the goal of the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center evolved into a worldwide effort to reduce world hunger. And the organization created many varieties of wheat with higher yields. And this was a very laudable goal. Um, however, what happened was, so initially some of the wheat hybrids developed by the IMWIC yielded heavy seed pods that were so heavy, they would bend the stalk over. So this is known as buckling and it would kill the plant. So that created issues during harvesting and of course it killed the plant. Um, so if it happened to break before, before the uh, wheat head had matured, um, that also posed issues to uh, yields. So geneticist Norman Borlaug genetically engineered around this problem, developing a very high yielding dwarf wheat variety that was at once shorter and stockier than its predecessors with a large seed head. And here, when I say genetically engineered, I don't necessarily mean genetically engineered in splicing and dicing the DNA sequence, I'm thinking more 
um, genetic hybridization would be a better choice of words there. The shorter stalk translated into less time to reach maturity, and this hybridization earned Dr. Borlaug the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970, along with the Presidential Medal. Met Let me see if I can talk here along with the Presidential Medal of Freedom and also the Congressional Gold Medal. Dwarf wheat varieties now predominate the world wheat supply and they accounted for, they were predicted to account for 99% of all wheat grown worldwide as of the time that the book Wheat Belly was written in 2011. So what's wrong with all of this hybridization and more chromosomes? Well, einkorn wheat's 14 chromosomes code for the A set of gluten proteins in wheat. Emer wheat's 28 chromosomes code for the A and B set of gluten proteins in wheat. And modern day wheat's 42 chromosomes code for the A, B, and D set of gluten proteins in wheat. So what does all of this have to do with autoimmunity? Well, gluten, um, as you picked up on what I just shared, is a protein. Or rather, gluten is a mixture of two proteins, um, a class of proteins known as glutenins and another class of proteins known as gliadins. And these um, proteins, the glutenins and the gliadins, belong to a storage class of proteins. And basically this, um, these storage class of proteins are what's responsible for providing energy to the seed if you were to take a wheat um, seed and, or a wheat grain and plant it. So glutenin and gliadin are each classes of proteins, which means there are many different glutenin and gliadin proteins. Glutenin proteins can be distinguished or subclassified as either high or low molecular weight with a size between 200,000 Daltons and a few million Daltons. Glutenins have a fiber structure and they're rich in cysteine, which is a sulfur-containing amino, amino acid. And because of its structure, glutenins form intermolecular disulfide bonds. So this is where one glutenin molecule is linked to another um, by these bridging bonds. Gliadins, on the other hand, are globular in structure. So glutenins are more long and fibrous. Gliadins are more globular, and they have many intramolecular disulfide bonds. So this is what holds it in that globular shape. It's um, bonds between amino acids within the gliadin protein, kind of holding it in that globular shape. So for people with celiac disease, it's the body's response to the presence of gliadin, which causes the autoimmune response. Wheat, barley, and rye all contain prolamines, and uh, I didn't mention, so prolamines are uh, plant storage proteins with high proline content, and gliadin classifies as a prolamine. It's the highly repeating frequency of proline amino acids and gliadins that create the autoimmune response that's seen in celiac disease. So kind of diving or delving a little bit deeper into this is um, 
what happens when you eat gluten? Because so your digestive tract is pretty um, is a pretty hostile environment. Once food enters your stomach, it's subjected to extreme acidity and and even in your saliva, there are enzymes that begin breaking down the compounds in the food. Um, gluten proteins are resistant to the digestive process. They're actually highly resistant to digestion by protease enzymes within the GI tract. Partial digestion of gluten proteins generates pathogenic peptides, which trigger an autoimmune response in those with celiac disease and in those with gluten sensitivity. So once in the digestive tract, gluten is partially hydrolyzed by the protease enzymes in the GI tract. However, what happens is that shorter peptide sequence that's created is um, once it gets into the bloodstream, which we'll talk about why it's getting into the bloodstream here in a second, once it gets into the bloodstream, it begins to elicit um, an immune response. And in people with celiac, it actually does this within the small intestines because with celiac, it's the villi in the small intestines that are being, uh, their morphology is being disrupted and the body is actually attacking those villa in the small intestines um, in people with celiac. So moving on here. So gluten, um, it upregulates the release of the intestinal peptide zonulin in the small intestines. And zonulin is involved in tight junction regulation. Um, high concentrations of the zonulin are suspected to be part of the reason for gluten's increased permeability across the intestinal membrane. Zonulin production is increased regardless of whether you have an autoimmune reaction to gluten. And it's believed that this is how wheat plays a role in the pathogenesis of type one. So that is autoimmune and type two, which of course, adult onset diabetes. Increased levels of zonulin increase the permeability of the gut, allowing gluten proteins and other foreign substances that normally wouldn't be able to cross those tight junctions. Instead, it uh, makes those tight junctions less tight so that gluten proteins and other foreign substances that normally wouldn't be able to cross the intestinal membrane leak through the intestines and find their way into the bloodstream. When the gluten protein, either the intact gluten protein or the shorter uh, chain specific amino acid sequence um, or specific peptide from the gluten um, protein is recognized by the immune system in susceptible individuals, these compounds can trigger a host of reactions, including migraines, eczema, chronic fatigue, food allergies, or trigger an autoimmune flare. And again, when here, autoimmune doesn't have to be celiac. It could be Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Uh, it could be insert name of the autoimmune disease. So the interesting thing about celiac disease is that it can also display non-classic symptoms, including malabsorption, osteoporosis, and iron deficiency. Since about 1950, triticum astidium, so again, the closest ancestor of modern day wheat, has been hybridized countless times, not only to increase crop yields, 
but also to increase its use and aesthetic in baking uh, because it really is the gluten proteins themselves. And again, there's more than one gluten proteins and gluten is a combination of the gliadin and glutenin protein. Um, so it's actually a, a, when we say gluten, it's talking about an even larger molecule. Um, so most of the genetic modifications and hybridizations have focused on altering the D genome of the chromosomes. And again, the D genome arose when uh, emer wheat was mated with another grass to form modern day wheat, or the, at least the ancestor to modern day wheat, that triticum estevium. It's the proteins coded for by the D genome that are most frequently identified as the trigger for celiac disease and for other autoimmune responses. So even though einkorn wheat has a higher ratio, sorry, even though einkorn wheat has a higher ratio of gliadin to glutenin proteins, a number of studies show that einkorn wheat doesn't induce the same autoimmune responses, at least in vitro, as it does in individuals diagnosed with celiac. So why is this? While einkorn wheat contains both gliadins and glutenins, the chromosomes that it codes for, or the specific proteins that it codes for are different. So the gliadin and the glutenin proteins produced by einkorn wheat are different amino acid sequences which results in likely different structures. Um, and this means that the peptidase enzymes or the protease enzymes would chop those up differently than it does with modern day wheat. So you wind up with different amino acid sequences. And the theory is that because of this, they're not inducing the immune response that you see with modern day wheat. The gliadin proteins present in einkorn wheat are more digestible by enzymes within the digestive tract than those in modern day wheat. Let me say that again, because I think I said it wrong. The gliadin proteins present in einkorn wheat are more digestible by enzymes within the digestive tract than those in modern day wheat. So in one study, intestinal tissue from biopsies of 12 patients with celiac disease was exposed to triticum monococcum, and that is einkorn. So that particular triticum monococcum is um, the Latin botanical name for einkorn wheat. So the intestinal tissue from biopsies of 12 patients with celiac disease was exposed to einkorn's gliadin protein for 24 hours no significant immune response was observed. By contrast, upon exposing the biopsy tissue to gliadin from T. estevium, a modern day wheat cultivar for 24 hours, there was significant morphological changes and alterations in the expression of immune markers associated with celiac disease. Is einkorn safe for people with celiac disease? Okay, time for a disclaimer here. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a healthcare provider. I'm not in any way authorized to provide medical advice. The information shared here has not been reviewed by the FDA. 
this is the information shared here is just my own research into the body of research available uh, on this topic. Now, back to the question, is einkorn wheat safe for people with celiac disease? Possibly. In his book, Wheat Belly, Dr. William Davis subjects himself to an experiment where he eats einkorn wheat on day one, and the next day he eats modern day wheat. Now, Dr. William Davis is not celiac. He does not have celiac disease. He has a wheat sensitivity. And with his particular wheat sensitivity, he was expecting rather rapid side effects after consumption of wheat. And he was pleasantly surprised that when he ate the einkorn wheat, he didn't experience any of the symptoms typical of his wheat sensitivity. The next day when he ate modern day wheat, he experienced his usual and rather rapid onset of symptoms, including high blood sugar quickly after ingestion, nausea, and sleeplessness. Like many doctors and healthcare experts who make claims contrary to convention, Dr. Davis has come under attack by the medical establishment for his book, Wheat Belly, and also his claims regarding modern day wheat. So this goes back to on the last episode where I got on my soapbox about people making hypotheses and then backing them with crackpot theories. Uh, now for total uh, transparency here, I read Wheat Belly uh, way back. I, I picked up this book, I actually own this book and I read it back in 2012 when I first started having symptoms of my own around um, with gluten sensitivity. And uh, of course, you know, I've become much more jaded over the past 10 years. And uh, I think much more, um, much more curious about what drives people to make the claims that they do. I picked up Wheat Belly again while I was researching for this um, topic today. And I, I, you know, I, I used it for some of the references, of course, cross-checking to be sure that the information had some support from, um, from the body of research available. And it was not just Dr. Davis pulling things out of his butt. Um, so anyways, now, Wheat belly itself goes far beyond what goes far beyond just the gluten question in modern day wheat. It also includes a look at modern day wheat and how it, uh, for instance, how it, what it does to blood sugar and what it does to pH within the body. And it, in total, it's about uh, 200 and about a 224 page book, and that excludes the references section and the appendices. Um, you don't need to pick up the book or read the book or even believe all of the other claims within the book to try this out for yourself. So back over to uh, today, now that, now that we've worked that additional set of disclaimers into this. So I discovered my own gluten sensitivity after being diagnosed with Lyme disease. And for me, wheat was second to barley in triggering a response. And for me, I experienced extreme anxiety 
after ingesting gluten, and especially after drinking a microbrew. This leads to another part of the discussion. So wheat, barley, and rye are generally considered the three grains that contain immune stimulating glutens. This is because the prolamine proteins in these three grains have highly repetitive proline sequences in their amino acid sequence. And because of the particular structure of the gliadin proteins within these three grains, those sequences likely evade enzymatic digestion. In rye, the gluten equivalent is secolins, and in barley, it's hordanes. And I'm probably butchering the names on both of those. Anyway, it's a they're not called gluten and gliadin. Those are specific to wheat. They're called uh, seclins and hordanes. So proteins in other grains, such as corn and rice, are also commonly called gluten. However, they don't cause the same kinds of immune responses in the body. Why might microbrews trigger a stronger immune response even than wheat? Well, the gliadin proteins are soluble in alcohols like ethanol, and the gliadin proteins are also insoluble in water. So when you ingest these proteins in liquid form, i.e. in the form of a microbrew, you're introducing ethanol from the beer along with the gliadin protein in your intestines at the same time. And because those proteins are already dissolved in the beer, this is different even than eating bread and drinking wine because the wine would have to work its way through the chewed bread and dissolve the gliadin proteins. And in a microbrew, that work's already been done. Um, it's done before you even ingest it. For beer, finding a great tasting replacement for me was easy. Omission makes beer with barley, so it tastes good. Uh, it's not made with rice or some other weird grain. And then omission uses enzymes to digest the gluten. For me, that resolved my problem with beer. And again, I'm gluten sensitive. I don't have celiac disease. As for wheat, Jovial Foods offers einkorn wheat flour and einkorn wheat pasta. Now, recently, uh, Jovial has switched their pasta offerings completely to gluten-free alternatives. And I'm right now, at least, um, haven't been able to find einkorn wheat pasta, although I'm not quite ready for a resupply yet on that. Um, just looking at their website in preparation for this episode, uh, they do not have einkorn wheat pasta right now. It's completely gluten-free alternatives. Okay, I use Jovial flour exclusively. And at least for me, again, I'm gluten sensitive and I don't have celiac. I don't experience the symptoms associated with wheat ingestion when I eat einkorn wheat flour. And another note here, I'm not an affiliate of either Omission or Jovial Foods. I discovered both of these companies around 2012 or 2013 and have been an avid consumer of both ever since. So how does einkorn wheat flour work in baking? Because go, this circles back around to part of the earlier conversation is much of the hybridization of modern day wheat has been to make it more amenable to baking and give it more of the properties that bakers desire so that Mm, that gluey, doughy, pliable 
texture um, in baking is due to the presence of gluten. Now, I use einkorn wheat exactly the same as regular wheat flour. I don't make my own bread. However, I substitute einkorn wheat flour into all cookie recipes, pie recipes, biscuit recipes, everything I make, make gravy with it um, instead of regular wheat flour. And again, at least for me, it does not elicit that immune response. So if you're gluten sensitive or if you would just like to avoid modern day wheat, consider jovial foods as your resource for ancient wheat. If you have celiac disease, it's much harder for me to even suggest that you try ancient wheat. And the reason for this is that should you have a reaction, it might very well land you in the hospital. So take this information, do what you will with it. <laughs> um, and again, I'm not a healthcare practitioner, your health is in your hands should you choose to take action on this information. One last note before closing out this topic. Why is it that some of us have such a, such a brutal reaction to modern day wheat and some of us seem just fine while the majority of your gut microbiome may reside in your large intestines, there's still some flora in your small intestines and enzymes created even from the limited number of bacteria species in your small intestines might influence your reaction to gluten. So I think this might be a largely unexplored territory and it could be that there's sufficient research out there and I just didn't um, dive into that particular body of research before um, recording this episode. So either way, it's something to keep in mind, uh, some food for thought, let's say. So next time on the podcast, we're taking a look at Roundup and how it might also be impacting your body's ability to deal with gluten. Stephanie Center joins me for that conversation, so be sure to hit the subscribe button because this is one episode you don't want to miss. As always, if you think of anyone who might enjoy today's episode, go ahead and hit that share button and send this over to them. And if you would be so kind as to take a few seconds and leave a review for Holistic Wellness, it would mean the world to me. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, bye.